All right, you just heard from Matthew 18, the gospel message today. Don't you just love St. Peter? I mean, th- this guy is always saying what all the other disciples wish they could say, but they're not bold enough to. In other words, everything that comes up into his mind comes out through his mouth, right? And today, Peter is true to form. Jesus has just preached this beautiful little sermonette. Remember the first part of Matthew 18? He's preaching on forgiveness, on reconciliation. What do you do if if a church brother or sister has wronged you? Jesus says you go to that person, you handle that dispute face to face. You seek to reconcile that person and bring them back into the fold. And then Peter asked the question that everybody probably wanted to ask. And one of you did ask because you submitted that for our hard sayings of the Bible series. And that question has to do with earthly justice, vengeance, and forgiveness. So the question basically is, when do I get to strike back, okay? Uh, How often do I have to forgive the person who's wronged me, okay? Uh, If you have your Bibles, let's look at the answer today. So on your phone, your tablet, whatever you got, we're looking at Matthew 18, verses 21 and following. And let me just give you some background while you're turning there. Peter today is trying to be magnanimous, magnanimous. He knows what the Old Testament says about disputes with your brothers. Exodus 21 says to us, you can retaliate immediately with somebody who's wronged you. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It sounds kind of harsh to us Christians, but actually it was a very gracious thing in the Middle East. It meant that if, uh, if Terry steals my chicken, I can't go to Terry's house and steal two of his chickens. There's a limit. I can only get back what has been wronged me, okay? So it was actually gracious. But Peter wants to take it a step further, doesn't he? He wants to be magnanimous this morning. Look at verse 21. He came up to Jesus. Lord, how often can my brother sin against me and I have to forgive him? As many as seven times? <laughs> you see what he said? Seven's a good number. Seven days in creation. Seven's the perfect number. Seven's a lot more than anybody else would forgive in that culture. Let me show my theological depth and my compassion. Seven, Jesus. Well, Jesus is not impressed by Peter. Look at verse 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, some scriptures you remember point, put it 70 times seven, right? Some of you have read that before. All those sevens, the perfect number. What he's hinting at there is Jesus is saying in the kingdom of God for Christians, forgiveness is infinite, is limitless. Forgiveness without borders. Forgiveness is without end. Now, what is truly behind Peter's question here? Well, think about it. What is Peter really asking? He says, basically, Jesus, I know you're big on this forgiveness thing. I know that I should forgive my neighbor, but give me a number. Give me a number. <laughs> tell, tell me when I can even the score. Tell me when I can extract my pound of flesh. Tell me when I can even the account with my pers- perpetrator. Don't we do that sometimes? Jesus, give, give me a number. Give me a number. If, if, if I forgive him seven times, is it okay on the eighth time to punch him in the nose? Give me a number. But Jesus is never giving us simple answers, is he? He rarely gives a simple answer. So what he does instead is he tells this amazing parable 
to illustrate what forgiveness in the kingdom looks like for Christians. Look at verse 23. He says, Peter, it's like this. A big king above all kings sells, uh, goes to settle accounts with all of his servants. Look at verse 24. He, defined, he decides that one of these servants owes him 10,000 talents. Now let's stop right there. What is a talent? A talent is a Roman measurement of 75 pounds of precious metal, either gold or silver. All right, that's what he owes him. Uh, so even the most conservative biblical estimates by scholars say that one talent will be worth $30,000 in our culture. So he owes him 10,000 talents. He owes him conservative, conservatively $300 million plus. Jesus' point is this. This man owed more than he could repay in a thousand lifetimes. Presumably, he was a king as well. But he was a vassal king under the great king. He would have been in charge of a region of the kingdom, and he had mismanaged his region of the kingdom to the tune of $300 million plus. So back to the story. The big king, the Caesar king, his first inclination is to bring justice. Make the man pay for what he owes. Look at verse 25. The master orders him to be sold, his wife, his children, everything that he had to make restitution. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But knowing his goose is cooked, the vassal king in verse 26 falls on his knees, begs for mercy. Have patience with me, king. I will pay you everything. Now notice the immeasurable grace and mercy of the king in verse 27. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him, forgave his debt. Three things to notice about the grace of the king there. First of all, he pitied the fool. As Mr. T used to say, if you're old enough to remember the A-team. He took pity on him. It says right there in the text. Other translations say he had compassion on the man. Uh, still, the English phrase that captures it best is, his heart went out to him. His heart went out to him. He identified with the man's predicament. He, he put himself in the guy's shoes. He empathized with his horrible condition. So just three things in that one verse. He pitied him. He forgave this enormous debt. And he let him go free. Let him go. Pity, forgive, set free. If you haven't caught on to it yet, Jesus is explaining the gospel there. This is about the gospel. The great king in the story is pointing to the greater king in heaven, God the Father. The servant who owes this enormous debt, that's you and me because of our sin. Debt that is so enormous that restitution could not be made in a thousand lifetimes of good works and righteous deeds. We're sunk. We're sunk. Ephesians 2 says this. Paul is very blunt. He says, but you were dead in your sins and your trespasses in which you once walked. What can dead people do for themselves? Nothing. We're hopeless without a God, the Father who loves us, and without the work, the redeeming work of the Son. So what does God do for us who owes so much because of our sin? Well, let's look at it. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting man's trespasses or debts against him. 
he absorbed the debt. 1 John 2, 2 says Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. He absorbed the debt. You see, it's like this. It was like this. Say, say, Alex, I want to borrow your car this afternoon, and I take it up to the store, and I wreck it. I crash his car. It's useless. It's totaled. And I, I know that Alex is a good buddy, and I don't want him to be without a car, and I want to make restitution. So I go to the ATM and get $300 out or whatever. I don't know how nice your car is or whatever your car, car you drive, three, $3 million, whatever it is. And I, I hand it over to Alex and say, buddy, I am sorry. I don't want you to be without a car. And I give it to him. He's got two things that he can do, two responses. He can say, thank you, um, because it's my fault. He could take the money, and that would be justice, right? I wrecked it. I deserve it. Or he could respond to me in mercy. He can cancel my debt. He, he could say to me, uh, Trip, I love you. My heart goes out to you. You don't have to pay me a dime. You see the difference? Justice and mercy. But if he gives me mercy, guess who pays? Not me. He pays. He's out the car. He's out the money. $300 million this guy owes. Guess who pays? The king pays. He absorbs the costs. He cancels the debt. Isn't that the gospel for us? That's the good news. On the cross of Christ, he took everything that is vile and wretched and ugly about us and bore it in his flesh. He, Jesus, took a long list of debts that God had against us, too many to number, too heavy to bear. And in blood and sacrifice, he took on our debt and canceled it and set us free. Instead of demanding justice, which God had every right to do, he gave us mercy. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the end that all that believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's the good news. But that's not the end of our story. The servant, having received grace, enormous debt canceled, having received mercy, being set free. Look at verse 28. The first thing he does, he finds one of his servants. Remember, this guy's a vassal king. He's got servants too who only owes a hundred denarii, a mere pittance of what he had just been forgiven. And yet, Jesus says in verse 28, he seized him by the throat, and he choked him. And he says, pay what you owe. Truly amazing story, isn't it? It really is. The guy should have lived the rest of his life in awesome thanksgiving to the, in obedience to the king. He should have been so faithful to God, so thankful that he's received a new life, that he should have been the first person to walk away from that new life and forgive every debtor he had, every single one. He should have been able to empathize with all the debts of everyone who had ever wronged him. And yet there he is choking the first guy he sees and says, pay what you owe. Jesus, in 32 and 33, brings the Caesar king back into it. He goes and says to that vassal king, you wicked servant, I forgave all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I've had mercy on you? Finally, he throws this wretch of a man back into prison. The prison of the unforgiving servant. He's unforgiving. Instead, instead of having a life of mercy, he wanted a life of justice. And he got it. He deserved that prison. How many times do we want mercy for ourselves but justice for somebody in our lives who's wronged us. 
Jesus is saying you can't have it both ways. You can live a life of justice, but you'll end up in the prison of unforgiveness. Or you can live a life of mercy in response to the gospel. You see, if you are harboring bitterness towards someone or grudges or mean-spiritedness, chances are you've not connected your life to the good news of God in Christ. You haven't counted the debt that you've been forgiven, and therefore you can't forgive others. Matthew 7, 18, Jesus says this. Actually, let's go one more. He said, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. And he said, a diseased tree can't bear good fruit. What he's saying there is if, if your roots are planted in the gospel of forgiveness and mercy and grace, then you naturally, like a tree, are going to bear the fruit of forgiveness to others. You can tell the root of a tree by the fruit of the tree. Are you bearing forgiveness to others? Tim Keller puts it like this. I love what he has to say. He says, there is no better way to know that you have a relationship with God on the basis of grace than to look into your heart at your ability to forgive those who have wronged you. Forgiveness, my friends, is hard work, I know, but it's not impossible work. It's necessary work, though, unless you're, uh, it, to get your, your hearts untwisted and out of prison behind the bars of unforgiveness. It's necessary work. And there are five keys that I want to just throw out real quickly to you. One thing that you can do is pray in the Holy Spirit. You know, in, in Ezekiel, God promises when the Holy Spirit comes, he can take your heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh. If you've got a heart of stone towards somebody, pray for that spiritual work to create a heart of flesh in you. Secondly, Literally, do the hard work of looking inside you and realize that you're not much different from that person that's hurt you. I know that's weird. Our natural inclination when we're hurt is to make this person into an evil caricature, to push them down so that we may rise up and look really good. That's what we do naturally. But remember Jesus addressed this. He says, you know, you might not have committed adultery in the Sermon on the Mount, but have you ever looked at one lustfully? Well, you've you got a lot more in common with this person than you think. You may not have committed murder, but have you ever harbored evil intent to your brother in your heart? Well, you've got a lot more in common with this person than you think. You see, if you break the cycle of retribution, that's when you identify with your perpetrator and you realize that there but for the grace of God go I. Number three. You need to absorb the debt as Christ absorbed your debt. You know what that means? It means giving up your right to gossip about that person. It means giving up your right to speak ill of that person. It means giving up your right to secretly in your mind rejoice when your perpetrator is hurt in some way. Have you ever done that? It's fun. But that's not the gospel. You've got to absorb the debt yourself. You've got to pay the price. Number four. You've got to release that person from their prison. Truly, you've got to forgive them. Paul puts it like this in Ephesians 4, 32. He says, be kind and tenderhearted toward one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Kind and tenderhearted. I know that that doesn't come on the front end. Uh, the work of forgiveness comes first, and then your heart will become kind and tenderhearted. But if you wait for your heart to feel forgiveness you will never offer forgiveness because it won't get there and you'll be stuck in the prison of unforgiveness. Number five, keep the cross of Christ ever before you. 
Constantly remind yourself of the great debt that God has paid on your behalf. And if you will root yourself there, then the fruit of forgiveness in the fertile ground of grace will be given a chance to grow. All right? It's hard work. It's not impossible. Just ask the family members who lost family members at Emmanuel Church. One said this to Dylan Ruth. said, I forgive you. You took something very precious away from me. I'll never get to talk to her again. I'll never hold her hand. But I forgive you. May God have mercy on your soul. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people. But if God forgives you, I forgive you. It's hard work. It's hard work, but it's not impossible. Another said, uh, Dylan, I want you to know that I forgive you and my family forgives you. But we would also like you to take this opportunity to repent. To repent, confess, give your life over to the only one who truly matters, Christ Jesus, so that you can change your ways. And that no matter what happens to you after this court case, you'll be okay. They wanted him to be okay in Christ. These folks got the gospel. They got it, they lived it, they shared it with their perpetrator. And I'll end with this. It's hard but not impossible. Paul says in Colossians 3.13, Bear with each other and forgive one another. If you have any grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you.